Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to episode 380, where we are going to try so hard to not be the longest podcast that you listen to. (laughs) Although I will say someone suggested this like pop culture podcast to me and the first one was over four hours and they like warn you at the beginning of the show. If you can't handle it, they don't want to hear your complaints. And I was like, Oh, that's pretty intense. And that's quite a commitment. Like, I'm not ready for that right now. But I I, I don't want to have to give you a warning. So friends, we're going to try really hard. <laughs> we realize we've been getting longer winded lately. So um, that said, for those of you who are listening to this in America, happy Thanksgiving. We did do a Thanksgiving show and hopefully it helped you prepare. Um, but because most of you are going to be listening to this after the holiday. We're just going to kind of jump into a completely different topic. But I did want to acknowledge that the show is coming out on Thanksgiving. So thank you. And I hope you had a wonderful holiday for those of you who celebrated with your family or however you wanted to spend your day. This is my first Thanksgiving as an American. I'm so excited for you. I know. I mean, we're, we're doing the same thing we do every Thanksgiving. We're just going to like eat until we feel a little bit ill of all delicious food, and then uh, lie down on the couch with our food babies. (laughs) (laughs) I, completely off topic, saw Frozen 2. This is, like I said, completely unrelated. But if you haven't seen it yet, it's a good season for that, oh, don't want to talk about it without giving it away, theme this time of year. So that's all. That's all I'm going to say about that. But um, I don't. You, just said, you say Stacy gives it two thumbs up. Uh, yes, I did. Okay. I really enjoyed it. I cried because I'm an old lady who cries at anything emotional. <laughs> I like such a sucker. Um, and I don't get to see very many like Disney princess movies. Usually, if we're mm-hmm. seeing a Disney movie, it has a superhero in it. Uh, but my boys enjoy. They enjoyed the first Frozen, and when I said I wanted to see this one, they all wanted to go with me, which was exciting. So it was a nice family event. There's nothing I love more than a good female empowerment (laughs) movie, and um, it does stick to its guns with that, as well as opening up other topics, which I think are good to explore this time of year. So that's all I'm going to say about that, and um, moving on. Moving on. Have you you haven't seen it with your girls yet, or you would say you had? So I hope uh, not yet. I hope you go check it out. Um, it's it's on my list. I haven't actually mentioned it to a- anyone in my family yet. <laughs> um, more from it, and it's funny because like I so I have a little bit of a crush on Jonathan Groff, um, who plays um, uh, Sven and the reindeer. <laughs> okay. Um, so or voices. Yeah. Sven. Um, and I have a big crush on Jonathan Groff. Let's just, let's be, let's be fully honest there. Um, 
And so I've been watching all of the like actor interviews and stuff about it. And I'm just like, oh, every every time I hear any little little tidbit about this show, I want to see it even more. Um, but I think Adele gets very emotional in movies that examine sibling relationships, which is a very interesting phenomenon for her. Like she bawled her eyes out during Lego Movie 2. Um like bawled her eye, like sobbed, like we had to like shush her in the movie theater. So um, I think she's a little bit nervous that this is going to be another triggering movie for her. Um, so yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting statement about uh, what she thinks about. It's a good sibling. Siblings. It's a good sibling dynamic. I think she'll be comfortable with it. Um, not as much as the first, but there are other relationships. So maybe you, anyway, you'll figure it out. You can read the mm-hmm. reviews online. That's this is not a commercial for that movie. <laughs> They're not sponsoring this episode nope. of the podcast. Nope. So let's jump into what we are here for, which is to talk about food cravings, especially while pregnant. I am super into it and I have an amazing story to tell at the right moment. So just be ready for it, friends. Okay. So this is our question. Since becoming pregnant, I have felt nauseous all day, every day, and the thought of food has been unappealing. All of my regular paleo foods, which I loved eating before, seem revolting. I am craving food that is sweet, like juice and fruit, which is not something I ate a lot of before. I also crave bread and fast foods. I am loving the salty and greasy foods that so far have found paleo substitutions, but I know that is not healthy either. Do you have any suggestions of what to do? Should I just give up the paleo lifestyle for my pregnancy and get back to it afterwards? I fear gaining back the 100 pounds I lost over the past two years. Thanks so much. I love your podcast. It taught me all about paleo. I had no idea what it was before you guys. Wow. I love to hear that. And lately, I've been hearing that a lot of the people who listen to the podcast don't even identify as paleo. So kudos to you for being here and understanding that this is the nutrient-dense, anti-inflammatory, non-toxic living website podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't roll off the tongue quite It's just not, you know, we've been working on an abbreviation and it hasn't come out. (laughs) So here's the thing is I was never paleo while pregnant. And I know you weren't either. I wasn't either. We both went paleo after um, our babies with me. Literally, the day that I came home from the hospital was when I discovered paleo um, because um, I knew I was lactose intolerant for breastfeeding and I had to give up dairy and Google is a wonderful thing. Um, at the time, like it didn't it, it didn't exist. Let's, let's be really clear. It was like in the dark web. Um, not actually, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. And so for me, um, I, I know about it from like a breastfeeding and a baby perspective, but not from a pregnancy perspective. And mm-hmm. I can totally see how food cravings would drive you to want something so terribly badly that in your mind, you're like, but I don't actually want that. You know, like, I don't yeah. want it for myself. I don't want it for my baby. But I do think that there are things that you can do to both answer the cravings as well as um, steer yourself towards a healthier option, which is kind of where I would go with that, right? Because I know we're going to talk about um, kind of the the science or what we don't know about cravings. But for me, I know that there are things, for example, 
um, when I'm about to menstruate or when I am in my cycle, I crave steak and broccoli and chocolate. And those things have high iron and magnesium. So my, that's what my body is telling me it needs at that time. So it makes sense to me that you might be craving things where you don't understand or we as people don't understand necessarily like why you would crave a fast food, but maybe there's something about it that your body would actually get from that. And so how how do we manage that? How do we kind of break it down and where we do understand the science and then where, where we don't kind of extrapolating on doing the best you can until you know better. So I'm just going to like leave that warning right here for a minute and make sure that before we jump into the show and we talk about better and best and we have all these guilty feelings as moms who weren't paleo, which Sarah and I are both in that group, um, that we say there's nothing about looking back and having guilt or wishing that you had done something different or telling yourself you should have done better. None of those things are healthy and you will yield positive results. So for those of you who are looking forward and you're thinking about what can I do, great. More power to you. For those of you who are like, oh, I could have shoulda, woulda, what good is that going to do you? And also, we never want to let perfection be the enemy of the good. So no matter what, we want to talk about how, you know, we can do the best that we can, but still maintain uh, quality of life. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like you don't want to add additional stress by telling yourself you really want fruit and saying like, no, I already had two or three pieces of fruit today. I'm not going to have more. Like, is that, is that really where we want to be, especially when we're pregnant and our body might be telling us that it really needs more vitamin C or whatever the case may be. Right. So I also, um, to sort of add to the, the mindset piece, which you are very eloquently addressing here. I also think that it doesn't serve us well to deal only in absolutes and ultimatums, right? So I'm craving something that's not paleo. Therefore, I should give up the paleo lifestyle, right? Like there's, there is this really old concept called an 80-20 rule that it's original version, like what Professor Cordain actually intended with the 80-20 rule was that 20%, like three meals a week would not be paleo. That was that was how it was presented in both the paleo diet and the paleo answer. Was um, it, it comes from this idea that um, doing something eighty percent of the time is sufficient to experience the majority of the benefits, and that has morphed over the years in our community. Right, the paleo community has um, over the last few years. Um, I think tried to push back against voices like ours, which really um, encourage a more sort of like balanced and sustainable approach, right? So the idea is making the better choice as often as possible and really thinking about um, having a healthy mindset towards our diet and lifestyle choices in order to maintain those for the rest of our lives and not tackle any uh, dietary template from an orthorexic perspective, right? So the idea is to really maintain a healthy relationship with food um, and with ourselves. And so there's voices like ours, right? We've been this voice of, um, you know, exactly what you said, Stacey, don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. And there's a little pushback within um, some uh, sort of corners of the paleo community that really um, want that rigid set of rules, really want it to be that if you ever eat a bowl of rice, you can't call yourself paleo. And this is a the very, you know, this is a very like 2012 idea. Um, 
but this whole idea that if you're, if you're not perfect, you're not paleo. And I, I really, um, disagree with that approach just in general. Um, I don't think that serves us. I think, um, I think it's really important to understand what the consequences of any particular choice might be to our health. And there are a lot of non-paleo foods where the consequence to our health for most of us is not much, right? There's a lot of um, foods that, you know, we'd call them gray area foods. They might be, right, the foods that are considered primal but not paleo or Weston A. Price but not paleo, right? There's these. There's a, a whole collection of them that the science is not equivocal on whether or not um, that food is health promoting or not. And so, you know, the standard paleo template would say eliminate them. But I think that when we get really, um, fanatical about the dietary template and the yes and no foods and the rules, and we start assigning foods as being good foods or bad foods. And we, we start assigning, um, like intent to our foods, right? Like this food is going to hurt me and this food is going to make me healthy, right? I think that that really opens up the door for um, for food choices being stressful. And that's not the, w- the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be that we understand which foods nourish our bodies. We understand which foods our bodies personally and individually do not tolerate. And there is variety from person to person on what foods those are going to be. And then we've got a lot of foods that are somewhere in the middle. And the goal, uh, my personal goal, I'm going to own this one. My personal goal is simply nutrient sufficiency. I have the food lines I can't cross, right? The foods that make me violently ill. I cannot eat something that has touched something that has touched gluten. But other than avoiding the things that will make me ill, my main criteria for a food choice is, does that provide my body with the nutrients that my body needs? And it's not, is that a good food or a bad food? And the more foods I choose that are super nutrient dense, the more wiggle room I earn for myself for something that's not optimal, because in the grand scheme of my diet as a whole, I'm going to be meeting my nutritional needs. And I think that thinking of diet in terms of, you know, what does my body need? And is my, are my food choices throughout the full day or the full week meeting those nutritional needs, it allows for a level of flexibility that can help us get away from that mindset of labeling foods or, as good or bad and getting really rigid and, um, and you know, quite frankly, fanatical about the foods that we're eating. I did not hear a mic drop. I, I waited. It, did, it <laughs> didn't come. Add it in post. <laughs> All right. So maybe I'll give you a little break from talking here for a minute. So I'm going to tell you how real, for those of you who have not been pregnant, we do have people on the show, listening to the show, who are men um, or women who have not ever been pregnant. Um, And so I'm going to share a story with you to help you understand how very real pregnancy cravings are before we jump into the, um, the science on them. So this is the practical side about this. This is the practical side of pregnancy cravings. So I remember I was pregnant, I think it was with Finn. So my second, my second pregnancy. And, um, 
when I was pregnant, I very much craved fast foods. And um, the ones in particular that I craved were like a breakfast sandwich from a fast food joint mm. and um, seven layer burritos and bean burritos from Taco Bell. Those were the things that I had very often when I was a vegetarian. And so um, those were my favorite things to get from Taco Bell. I never really got like the meat things from Taco Bell. Um, and so now obviously we don't eat there at all. I don't want to confuse you. This was, you know, <laughs> before we were paleo a few years ago, 13 or whatever years ago. And, um, so very often I would just tell Matt, like, I need to go, I need to do this thing. And it was probably related to whatever, was in the beans, right? Because that was particular to like what I was craving. It could have been a cup of the beans. It could have been in whatever. It was like the beans were the thing. And I don't, who knows? Maybe it was fiber. Maybe it was whatever it was, right? I don't eat beans now. So I, the idea that this was something I ate often is just kind of disgusting, but it is what it is. And um, so we're in the car and I had said, I, I need, I need, like not, I want, I need, um, <laughs> must have, must now. have, I need. Um, and he's like, okay. And I don't know, it wasn't around or we were on our way to something or whatever. And then like 10 minutes passed by maybe 12 minutes. Okay. Just like a reasonable amount of time to any normal human. And I looked at him and I screamed and I like grabbed both sides of the passenger like door and like his leg on the other side. And I like got in his face and I was like, if I don't get a bean burrito right now, I am going to die. I don't think you understand what's happening. And like... <laughs> I really wish that we'd had it on video because it kind of like sums up everything about like my personality and like everything. But I basically, I mean, I told him I was going to die. Is Those were the words that I used if I did not have a bean burrito that minute. And he's like, okay, I get it. Um, so I tell you that story because it is very real. It is not just like... I think a lot of us, especially when we're not pregnant, we have a craving and, you know, I can say to myself, that's not a good choice. That's not a choice I want to make today. Not that it's not a good choice. I've got to be careful. Um, I'm going to have, for example, I'm going to make myself chia seed pudding instead or whatever, right? Like we can kind of like have these conversations with ourselves sometimes and sometimes we can't and we indulge in whatever it is and then we move on and all that mindset stuff we talked about, right? But in the case of pregnancy, something happens a lot of times that is like takes over the normal part yeah. of who you are and becomes intensified to the nth degree. So it stops being a choice. Yes, exactly. So let's yeah. dive into why we think that might be the case. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I was, um, this was not something I knew a whole lot about. So I, I mean, I've got a very uh, good grasp of the hormone, hunger hormone systems. Uh, I've got a pretty good grasp of what's happening neurologically in terms of driving hunger um, and in terms of like stress-induced cravings. But in terms of what's happening during pregnancy, this was not something that I I knew very much about. So as I was researching it, what I discovered is probably the reason why I don't know very much about it is because nobody really does. Um, there's some really interesting hypotheses and there's some little bits and pieces of data that um, – will help to explain bits and pieces of 
the really strong cravings that pregnant women can have. Somewhere between 16-90% of women experience um, that very, very strong level of craving. It's not like a, hmm, I think it might be nice to have, you know, hamburgers for dinner tonight. It is a uh, get me a bean burrito or I will die level craving. So that's that's a really common experience. Um, and it also what foods that women are craving tends to be very um, at least culturally influenced. So there's been a couple of studies that have like tried to quantify what types of cravings that you know women have. And so in America, the most common cravings are for dairy products and sweet foods, um, mostly like chocolate, hundred percent fruit, hundred um, percent <laughs> less, more le- more less commonly would be something savory or salty, such as pickles or pizza. I had cravings in my second pre- pregnancy for fried fish sandwiches from fast food restaurants. I will say m- my cravings yeah. changed for each child too. Like, oh yeah, no, they were very different. Cole was child. dairy, chocolate, like everything, and Finn mm-hmm. was pizza. And I yeah. told you what Wesley was. I mean, I what, no, 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 Wesley was pizza. Finn was Taco Bell. <laughs> I craved dairy with Adele, and so I craved soft serve ice cream and cottage cheese with tomatoes which is funny to me now because I cannot eat those foods. Um, those are much Mira, healthier than what I was indulging with in. Mira, <laughs> but with Mira, I craved fried fish sandwiches and um, McDonald's breakfast sandwiches. So, you know, I made up for it. Um, but uh, that's just a complete aside. So those are the really like common pregnancies in America. There was a study in Tanzania where they looked at what pregnant women were craving um, and it was like about a quarter was meat, about a quarter was mangoes, which I would say falls into that like fruit as a common craving. Um, about a fifth of women were craving uh, yogurt, about a fifth of women were craving oranges. There was um, also a fairly good like, you know, percentage of women who were craving like one sixth of women who were craving plantains. So we got like the starchy um you know, food there and as well as soft drinks, like just straight up sugar. Um, so, you know, I think it's there, we have an association. So I think we're probably craving some kind of flavor experience and culturally we have associations with that flavor experience. So if we have, you know, for craving sweet, um, we have certain foods that are, you know, are familiar foods that are sweet. So I think that's, that's likely what those that type of, of data is showing us. Um, but there's, there's really like two or three sort of plausible explanations for what's driving those craving cravings. So one is a change in hunger hormones. Um, and how those actually manifest as cravings versus just increased appetite is not particularly clear. But we know that there's changes in pregnancy to the neuropeptide Y uh, system. So neuropeptide Y is this neurotransmitter that basically regulates hunger in the brain. So we have these neuropeptide Y sensitive neurons and hunger hormones like ghrelin and leptin and you know insulin, right? Things that we've talked about on the show before that are probably relatively familiar to our listeners. They can modulate hunger either by increasing or decreasing the production of this neurotransmitter, neuropeptide Y, or by changing the sensitivity of the receptors to neuropeptide Y on neuropeptide Y sensitive neurons. So what we know happens during pregnancy is an increase in the production of neuropeptide Y, the the neurotransmitter, um, and that directly causes increased appetite. How that, um, there are some scientists who believe that it is in this system that, that 
cravings are, are occurring. Um, but it's not fully understood how, how a change in hunger hormones is directly causing not just an increase in appetite, but cravings for specific foods. Um, there's also some changes to our taste buds that are happening during pregnancy. So for example, the, the best understood is that our salt sensitivity decreases dr- during pregnancy. So how salty, salty foods taste to us um, is different, right? So something that might be disgustingly salty to me now might be pleasantly salty to me as a pregnant version of me. Um, so that change in sensitivity to taste buds may explain the desire for more extreme flavors because it's also, if you look at what types of foods that people are uh, craving, it tends to be those very comforting extreme flavors. It's the same types of foods that we crave when we're under chronic stress, but also there's that hyperpalatable food again, right? Those foods that are sort of designed to be super rewarding to the brain, right? To trigger all of the different um, reward signals that we can get from food all at the same time. And this may, our, our move to those hyperpalatable foods may be in part because they're there for us, right? They've been invented. Um, in addition to the fact that we require a more intense taste experience in order to feel the same as we did before because of a decreased sensitivity of our taste buds. Then there's this um, last uh, sort of, I would call this still on the level of a hypothesis in terms of explaining um, cravings, which comes from uh, neuroscience. And it's literally an area in the brain. It's called the insular cortex. It's often called the fifth lobe of the brain. Um, it's not very, it's not mapped in as much detail as other areas of the brain. But what we do know is that taste maps to this area. And so does the uterus. And so there's Wait, a, you can't just like, and so does the uterus and not address that. Right. Well, no, let me, well, let me continue. So there's different uh, different parts of uh, our sensory or also like mechanical, right? So like um, our dexterity, for example. So like if you are a musician, you you will have a larger area of your brain that is dedicated to mapping your fingers. Um, so, when we are specifically working on a skill, we're basically increasing the region of our brain that is responsible for muscle memory, you know, actual memory and control, right? So we're, we're basically, it's like if you were building muscle, but in this case, you're building dexterity, for example. So um, we know that the brain adapts by, it's sort of like carving out more resources, for being able to, to learn this special skill or master the special skill. So there is this idea that because the area of the brain that maps taste is so close to the area of the brain that um, maps the uterus, that as the uterus is changing in volume and the right that there's the sensations, right? There's there's a lot that's happening down there during pregnancy, that it's it's literally impacting taste 
it's because it's like right next to that area of the brain that is responsible for um, taste and um, the, you know, cravings and, right, like when we think about, well, what do I want for dinner, right? Like that's the part of the brain that's thinking, ooh, that would be tasty, right? So then if you start tangentially impacting that area of the brain because right next door is the area of the brain that's responsible for understanding what's going on in the uterus. Um, that is at least a hypothesis from neuroscience to explain, you know, the pickles and ice cream type cravings that can happen during pregnancy. It is still very hypothetical. Um, but it, it makes a lot of sense given, you know, the other things that we know about neurobiology. Um, it's, it's, interesting, but it, it is far from, you know, it's far from a proven phenomenon. Um, and it may not be one or the other, right? So it might be this combination of increase in appetite, increase, um, in our, um, or alteration through neurobiology of how we perceive taste with a desensitization of taste buds, all working together. And then there's the, the last mechanism that is very likely driving uh, cravings during pregnancy, which is nutritional de- deficiencies. So there are certain nutrients that are demand for increases during pregnancy. They're very, very important for supporting uh, development of, of the fetus. Um, and there are, you know, uh, you know, there's a huge increase in our daily value when we're pregnant of these nutrients. And um, if we're not getting sufficient ones from food, you know, especially when we're in a place where we've been eating a relatively healthy diet and we are better able to eat intuitively, um, not, I would say not all of us get there. I would say I still have some things that I can eat intuitively, right? I know that um, I might crave seafood, for example, and I, that's a perfectly healthy craving that probably relates to me needing more of the nutrients that's in seafood, but then I'll, you know, also crave things that are, there's nothing in that, that I, you know, that's a stress craving that's just related to that's a calorie dense food. So, um, you know, how intuitive of an eater we can be depends a lot on our previous emotional relationship with food. Um, but for some people who, um, can eat intuitively, they'll tend to crave the foods that are rich in these nutrients during pregnancy. And for people who can't, they'll tend to just crave food, right? So we've got some other science, for example, not related to pregnancy, showing that calcium and magnesium deficiencies can manifest as sugar cravings. In pregnancy, we don't really understand a direct one-to-one correspondence. But so for example, we need more um, folate, vitamin vitamin B9 during pregnancy. It's really, really important for supporting uh, neural tube development in the fetus, um, the brain and in the brain and the spinal cord, right? So like that, um, in fact, like spina bifida or other neural tube defects are directly related to folate deficiency, which is why women are recommended to take typically folic acid. And we can get into why folic acid is not the best form to take um, to support fetal development, but they're recommended basically to take vitamin B9 even before getting pregnant so that their nutritional status of vitamin B9 going into pregnancy is good um, because it's important so early on in pregnancy. And those are, for example, really rich in like nuts and seeds and avocados, um, you know, and like green vegetables and 
winter squash and things like that as well. Um, but I know that I really enjoyed eating nuts and seeds during both of my pregnancies. And I, you know, like I read that list and I go, huh, I wonder if that was related to my need for folate. Um, so that can certainly translate as, I mean, any of the new, these nutrients can translate as, as cravings. Um, but it's also something that I really wanted to talk about in the context of pregnancy cravings, because I think as we come back around to where we started in terms of mindset, this is where the, the overall, right. Looking at the day as a whole focus really needs to be is meeting the nutritional needs of a pregnant body, which means increased folate, increased vitamin A, increased vitamin D, increased calcium, increased choline, increased iron, increased zinc, and increased long-chain omega-3 fats, DHA and EPA. Um, those are the nutrients that are particularly important during calcium. I mean, of course, we need all nu nutrients during pregnancy, um, but they're the ones that are particularly important for supporting fetal development and that our, our requirements go up pretty dramatically. So I'll go through them really quickly, what, what they're actually doing. So I already mentioned folate. Vitamin A is kind of a multitasker. So it's important for the embryonic development of eyes, heart, lungs, kidneys, central nervous system, respiratory system, and circulatory system. Um, so that's like almost everything. Um, our need uh, during pregnancy is um, somewhere uh, around 770 micrograms. They're called retinol activity equivalents, but it's far preferable to get vitamin A already in its animal form. So getting it from organ meat or red meat or seafood. Um, and that's because not everyone converts um, something like beta carotene, uh, carotenoids in vegetables into retinols, which are the active form of vitamin A. So, um, you know, especially if you know that you're not an awesome vitamin A converter, but I think it's, it's just overall a better approach to meet vitamin A requirements for everyone from animal foods and think of carotenoids as antioxidants rather than vitamin A precursors. They're still very beneficial. Um, but at best we're, we can only convert about 3% into active vitamin A. Vitamin D is another big multitasker, just like it is um, for adults. Um, it's particularly important in supporting um, calcium absorption. So through that, supporting a skeletal system, as well as particularly important in immune function. And there's a variety of research showing that addressing vitamin D deficiency can help prevent pregnancy complications such as gestational diabetes, which I had the first time, preeclampsia, which I had the first time, um, but also things like low birth weight and preterm birth. And there's actually been um, some interesting studies that have, you know, like the official recommendation is 600 IU a day for pregnant women. But there was one study that actually found that the best benefits were in women taking 4,000 IU of vitamin D per day in terms of preventing infections and preterm birth. There was no evidence of harm in that study, but I'm going to remind people that what we are doing is talking about scientific evidence, which is different than uh, you talking with a healthcare provider who knows your health history and is licensed to actually make recommendations. So um, please, before you take supplemental vitamin D, talk to your physician. And I would also refer back to our vitamin D show where we talked about um, how much vitamin D we can actually get from food and sunlight and why 
supplementing is actually, this is the one nutrient that, that in our current modern lives, most of us actually need to supplement in order to actually meet our needs, but that it's really important to retest for vitamin D to make sure you're not overshooting the mark. And that is particularly important if you diagnose vitamin D for the first time during pregnancy. You really wouldn't want to overshoot the mark, but you would want to address that as efficiently as possible. So please work with a qualified healthcare provider for that. Um, calcium, I already mentioned, really important for skeletal development, but it's also actually essential for proper functioning of nerves and muscles, as well as blood pressure regulation. It's most important during the third trimester, um, as opposed to some of these other ones that are either important, uh, you know, throughout the whole pregnancy, uh, like vitamin B9 I mentioned is, is really important, very, very, like from the day of conception, um, calcium intake increases most during that third trimester, um, to about a thousand to 1300 milligrams a day. And this is an interesting one because, um, rich calcium sources in the paleo diet include eat things like eating sardines or like canned salmon with the bones. Um, you know, there are, there is calcium in green vegetables. Uh, there is obviously calcium in grass fed dairy. Um, there's actually a lot of calcium in something like blackstrap molasses, um, which can actually serve almost as a, as a supplement because it is so nutrient dense. Um, but I highly recommend, especially for anybody who is pregnant and has already identified that, that they're sensitive to dairy products, um, to use an app to track their calcium intake, um, and really make sure that they're, they're getting enough. I think calcium on the paleo diet is one of the easiest minerals to, um, fall short on in terms of our, our daily requirements without, uh, if, if you're missing that nutrient sufficiency focus where you're actually really paying attention to getting enough nutrients. So I think calcium is one of those ones that can be easy to fall short on. And there's some easy foods that you can throw in. You can do things like mineral water that's high in calcium. Um, that can easily, like, I think, um, I think Grolsteiner, the, the bigger bottles, but I think they have something like 20% of the daily value of calcium in it per bottle. Um, I might, I might not remember that correctly. It's been a while since I've purchased it, but, um, there's, there's some little easy tricks to up calcium intake. Um, but it's definitely, definitely an important one. Choline is also as, as a B vitamin, it's another, you know, nervous system, neural tube, brain, uh, type nutrient. Our best sources are egg yolks, liver, um, shrimp, and beef, and and choline is another one of another nutrient that has been previously identified to be easy to fall short on on a paleo diet. So again, it's sort of another one to to look at. And choline is typically like if you look at USDA database in terms of like nutrients and foods, choline is typically reported now. So you can usually find out how much something has in it. Iron is really important for um, basically cre creating blood. Right, hemoglobin is an iron-based molecule. It's the um, most abundant mineral in the human body. And during pregnancy, it's not just the fetal blood supply that's developing, but there's uh, an increased, the, the mother has an increased blood supply as well. So iron becomes really important. Um, and of course, you know, our best sources of, of iron are red meat and organ meat, especially when consumed at the same time as a vitamin C rich food. Um, we can also get some iron from leafy greens, but I think it's very hard to get sufficient iron without a couple servings of red meat a week. Um, zinc is the second most abundant mineral in the human body and very, very, 
um, necessary for, uh, I mean, enzymatic activity in general. So zinc is a cofactor for about 300 different enzymes. And so because of that, it's involved in almost every system, but it's particularly important in uh, the development of the fetal immune system, as well as um, maintaining insulin sensitivity in the mother. So it's known to to be related to gestational diabetes. The uh, recommendation is 11 milligrams a day. Um, and zinc uh, is really richest in shellfish, like oysters, but you'll also get a good amount from just about any kind of meat and nuts and seeds are also pretty good sources. And then those long chain omega-3s, we're really only getting that from seafood. We can get um, some from sea vegetables, so like seaweeds um, as well. But this is where there's a really interesting conversation to be had over this like traditional recommendation that pregnant women limit their seafood servings to two servings a week out of concerns of um, the impact of methylmercury contamination in seafood on fetal development, which is a legitimate concern. However, I will refer again our listeners back to our relatively recent uh, seafood show where we talked about the selenium health benefit value, which is basically a reflection of the amount of selenium to mercury in seafood because once the mercury has bound up with selenium inside the fish, it's not very well absorbed into our body and it can't do the thing that hurts us. Um, the reason why mercury is problematic is because it binds irreversibly to selenium and we have some very, very important enzymes related to uh, thyroid hormone production as well as important antioxidant enzymes in the brain that are selenium-based. And so if mercury binds with that selenium, those enzymes can't do their job. That's why there's the mad as a hatter. So like uh, the oldie timey felt hats, the felt was treated with mercury and like hatters actually did go crazy. And it was from the damage to the brain from mercury binding with these antioxidant selenium-based enzymes in the brain that helped protect the brain from damage. So yes, mercury is a concern, but if there's more selenium than mercury in the fish, it is uh, moot in terms of a concern. And most fish, especially cold water ocean fish, is higher in selenium than mercury, especially fish that's lower on the food chain, so smaller fish. Um, and given how phenomenally important those omega-3 fats are, fish is also a great source of like, every other nutrient mentioned here, but especially um, zinc and vitamin A and vitamin D, um, it, it doesn't make sense to limit to two servings a day. What does make sense is to be aware of, um, of the selenium health benefit value. And I've got, um, charts on my website as well as, um, the best chart is in the, uh, the paleo approach in terms of like grabbing selenium health benefit values from as many different papers as have measured it. Um, to really show that, you know, other than things like maybe swordfish, definitely something like pilot whale, which is not a, a normal fish that most of us are going to find in the grocery store. What? You're not having that every Tuesday? No, weirdly. It's not pilot whale Tuesday. <laughs> uh, it's not. Mm, I mean, I, I would totally I would totally try it. Are you kidding me? I, I, will, I will try any food. But uh, not something I have uh, found at my local fishmongers. Um, so, so um you know, being aware of which fish it's important to limit. Like I would definitely not recommend more than a serving a week of swordfish. But if we're talking about um, 
tuna, especially the smaller species of tuna or salmon, like those are safe fish to consume. And uh, I'm going to, again, add the caveat of I am not a doctor and whatever your doctor says trumps whatever I say. Um, But it's it really this is a recommendation that needs to be reevaluated in terms of what we know. And there are plenty of physicians who are now saying aim for at least five servings a week. So the the landscape on that is shifting. Um, but we we know that omega-3s are phenomenally important for supporting um, fetal development. And it's like brain, central nervous system, the eyes, um, and it also supports maternal health. So that's that's another, um, you know, omega-3 deficiency increases risk of preeclampsia, increases risk of preterm birth. So it's, it's a really important one. So um, those nutrients, um, and again, you can actually, this information is on my website. It's also in Paleo Principles. Um, it's, um, I think that the primary criteria for diet during pregnancy, actually, I would say the primary criteria for diet in general is nutrient sufficiency, meaning that you get the full complement of essential and non-essential nutrients in adequate and synergistic quantities from food. And when you do that, you end up, when you pick foods based on the nutrients they contain, you end up at roughly the paleo diet, right? A nutrient-focused paleo diet that eats snout to tail and you know, eats, you know, three quarters of the plate being vegetables and eats variety. That diet we haven't figured out how to rename yet. Right. The one, the one that we keep saying that has the giant acronym that's 20 letters long, (laughs) um, that, um, doesn't shy away from fruit or root vegetables, right. That thinks mushrooms are amazing. Um, you know, that diet is the most health promoting diet, but also the more I want to sort of bring back to that really, I think the central point that I want to make is that the more nutrient-dense foods we choose, the more wiggle room we earn for ourselves in terms of suboptimal choices. And I think it is absolutely appropriate to, um, it's almost like, remember Weight Watchers back when it was called Weight Watchers and you had a certain number of points. And you could eat all like the carrot and celery sticks earlier in the day to save up your points for the thing that you really wanted. I think that system is fundamentally flawed because the points reflect calories rather than nutrients. But I think that you can do something like that with nutrients where you focus on the foods that are meeting your nutritional needs. And then you have some points left over at the end of the day for the thing that you're craving or the middle of the day. I I think that it is okay to honor, I need to eat this bean burrito right now, or I'm going to die level pregnancy cravings with in, in conjunction with awareness and commitment of the nutritional needs, right? So, so making intentional choices when we're not being driven by those cravings to, you know, do our best to meet the nutritional needs of our pregnant bodies right now. And I, I think that that is a valid approach to handling, uh, cravings and aversions during pregnancy. And I also think that given the link between nutritional deficiencies and cravings, it's very likely that that approach will diminish cravings. Also remember that lifestyle can impact cravings. So make sure that 
you're getting enough sleep, make sure that you're managing stress, make sure that you're getting out for a walk and getting some activity. Like all of those things are going to modify the system as well. But I, I, you know, getting back to that, I think really important initial answer is, um, you know, I think that, uh, nutrient sufficiency is really important, but so is that relationship with food. And I don't think that the only way to navigate pregnancy cravings and aversions is, you know, absolutes. I would say the other two things that I notice affect my cravings significantly are digestion. So Mm. specifically as someone who was a vegetarian and did not have a gallbladder, um, my nutrient sufficiency was significantly depleted um, because I wasn't properly digesting the foods that I was eating. And Mm -hmm. we see this a lot in people who crave foods. Um, For example, people who are celiac are often really underweight or really overweight because of the way their bodies are not absorbing nutrients and how their cues are coming in to tell them to um, eat more or eat less of what's bothering them. Um, And so when I started taking digestive Uh, supplements and learning how to properly eat for my body, it completely changed the way my body craved food. I mean, I, uh, I still get cravings for sure, but it's an entirely different experience than uh, previously when everything was kind of running through me. And then literally I would have just eaten a meal and had everybody out. And then I'm like, now I'm hungry again and I have to eat. You know what I mean? It was like constantly um, that cycle. And the other thing is probiotics. So we've talked about gut health on the show a lot. We've had shows where we talked about um, specifically why we like Thrive Probiotic. Um, They're not a sponsor of the show, but I'm telling you, I personally have significant decreased cravings when I am taking probiotics because it's managing the microbiome that tell me... um, all of the things that cause the triggers that we've talked about before. Um, And I think there's probably something to the digestive support that it's providing as well for all of these nutrients that Mm -hmm. are not being absorbed because I have all those digestive issues and celiac and all that stuff. So um, while Sarah has said multiple times, we're not medical professionals before you start supplementing with digestive enzymes or um, there's other ways to increase your digestion, things like not drinking water while eating a meal. Like a lot of people will have right before a meal or during a meal, they consume a lot of water or other liquids. It's important to not do that because you're diluting your body's um, stomach acid if you have digestive issues. So that's something that you could do yourself. A lot of people start the day with like lemon water and stuff. I don't know anything Mm -hmm. about that. Um, I just know that that's something that some people do that say helps. There are different ways that you can support your digestion. But if you are going to look into supplements, for example, I took ox bile and a couple other things, um, and then um, probiotics, and you're pregnant specifically, talk to a medical professional. I would do it if I were pregnant, but I'm not you and I'm not a medical professional. So make sure to look into that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point is sometimes nutritional deficiencies are not related to how nutrient dense our food choices are, but rather whether or not we're actually absorbing the nutrients from our food. So that was a, that's a 
a really good addendum. And I do think our gut bacteria are the boss of us. So um, interestingly, we do know that they produce a ton of neuroactive compounds that actually influence food cravings. I'm writing about that for my new book. So <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm um, shocked. I haven't, I have not particularly seen any research on that in the context of pregnancy. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that um, if anyone has looked into it yet, I haven't stumbled across the research papers. Well, I think um, the thing is, and I think you kind of tangentially said this, but if we think about it, like researchers don't want to potentially harm a fetus. And so pregnant women aren't often going into studies. And this is why we have a difficult time really having the science on a lot of this stuff. So you can extrapolate me, I'll say it because I'm not the PhD. You can extrapolate that <laughs> if you have, for example, a dairy intolerance and you're eating a bunch of dairy because your body is craving calcium and it's causing the other things that you are eating to not be properly absorbed because your body's like, whoa, what's happening? I can't deal with this. And your tight junctions are getting loose and whatever's happening down there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Then whether you're pregnant or not pregnant, that's going to affect the foods and the nutrients that you're absorbing. But anyway, I'm just, now I'm throwing out crazy talk. So I'll wind it down. I'm, get, I'm getting uh, on the soapbox and I'm getting loud. My favorite favorite phrase from this entire episode is and your tight junctions are getting loose um <laughs> and that is now just going to be how i explain leaky gut you're from welcome now on <laughs> yeah it's just i mean the opposite of tight is loose i i don't i don't understand why we would use any other language to describe it it's pretty great i, I am love it. so blushing right now and i don't even know why so <laughs> no, let me I go ahead I, I think it's fantastic let me go ahead and wrap up this show before i just dig it even deeper. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in and listening. If you know someone who um, is pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant, or maybe just in general, <laughs> have shared with you that they have um, intense cravings, we would love nothing more for you to refer someone to this show, share it with them. That is the greatest gift that you can give us, the greatest compliment. Um, and if you want to help strangers find this podcast, please head to whatever device you're listening to this on and leave a review, which you can do um, at any time to override it. And the more reviews you give, the higher we will be ranked and the more people will see us and the more confidence they will have to listen. So thank you so much for your support. We cannot tell you enough what it means to us. We have enjoyed being with you in your ear for, I don't know, like seven years. We say this every time we, we can't yeah. do math. It's, it's a problem. I think we, yeah, I think we figured no, it out. And it was six seven and, and, half. and a half years. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, um, I'm doing some math right now. So we feel like we've, cool. we've been buds. I mean, we're practically family at this point. So sure. um, it does not go lost on us how special it is that you show up and listen every week. And we want to thank you for that. And we hope that you have had a wonderful Thanksgiving and are finding things in your life to be um, grateful for and happy with. And I wish everyone a happy and healthy new decade. And this is like the official kickoff of winding down the decade Ooh. as we enter into 2020. So I am doing a lot of personal reflection, not just about this year, but like, whoa, it's a decade is ending. It's kind of crazy. Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. <laughs> and now I'm like completely. I mean, your um, life was not the same a decade ago. I know that. That's true. Well, so my youngest daughter just turned a decade old. 
Um, so also that triggers all kinds of reflections because my youngest child is a decade mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. So it's a whole, it's a whole, it's all wrapped up now. It's, um, yeah, I'm going to go curl up in the fetal position right now. <laughs> no need to do that. Enjoy <laughs> the, the last decade and how, what the, what wonder and changes it's brought into your life, but it's also a good time to think about what you want the 2020s to be. So as we look forward, I'm sure we'll have lots of podcasts to help you do that in the next coming weeks. And we thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Oh, there's a kitty cat, Take too. Take and the dog. Okay. <laughs> we, could, we could just have a podcast that's just that. It's just, my I could f- record my cat. You could record your animals. We get my favorite dog noises. My favorite is the boy bangle. When he whines, it sounds like a, a baby crying. So it's like, <laughs> I've tried to record it so many times. It's like every time the camera's out, he sees it and he like runs. It's um, like, showtime. Look at me. Oh, Penny doesn't want to weave. What is it? I can't, literally cannot not use the Penny voice even when I know I'm being recorded. It's disturbing. Wait. Wait, I need to hear this penny voice. You just heard it. You just oh, that is it. Yeah, okay, it's worse. It's it gets worse for sure. That's that's the tip of the iceberg of the penny. Yes, voice. for sure. <laughs> it goes so real great. deep. I'll like have whole conversations with her and her voice. It's disturbing. It's not. It's like a perfectly normal human nature of proving to your dog that you can speak their language. <laughs> she does like respond to it. You know, I'm not just making mm-hmm. it up. No, she's like, wait, you speak Wookiee? I mean, dog? Do you have Disney Plus? Uh-huh. Okay. I'm Because it's worth the $5 add-on to Hulu. It's just for Baby Yoda. No. Yeah. Well, Matt's watching Baby Yoda. I am reliving the 90s with, like, catching the boys up on all of the Disney cartoons <laughs> that either Cole hasn't seen since he was, like, five, or, in Wesley's case, hasn't seen at all. And it's wunderbar. Uh, no, we are we are all about Baby Yoda in this family. Um, Baby Yoda is my favorite thing right now. Matt sends me gifts of Baby Yoda mm-hmm. in an attempt to get me to also want to watch The Mandalorian with him. And I'm like, meh. I mean, I get it. He's cute, but um, I've moved on. All right. I, I, I think this is our last podcast episode, Stacey. <laughs> I don't know how we can continue after that. <laughs> I will go see the next one. Rogue 2 is what I'm going to call it. <laughs> Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.